Okay, welcome to another episode of the Young Professionals in Energy podcast. I'm Mark Heineman, and I'm joined today by Todd Bricks. Todd is the CEO and co-founder of OcoChem, which is an awesome new SinFuel startup company that I'm sure we'll, we'll dive into and, and talk all about. But before we do, um, Todd, I'm hoping to just try and get a little bit of background about you. Um, first off, how are you doing? You, you guys are on the West Coast today, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, we're out here in uh, in Richland, Washington, uh, in the southeastern portion of uh, Washington State, where we have our our lab and main office. Awesome. Um, so, Todd, before we dive into Oco, um, let's let's just kind of start with you. Where where'd you get your start? Where'd you go to school? Uh, give us some background on uh, kind of kind of your story. Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm a chemical engineer by training. Went to the University of Washington. Graduated with an undergrad. There and then spent a number of years working um, in the oil industry, uh, specifically Chevron uh, Research and Technology out in California uh, for about five years. I was a hydro processing design engineer there, um, working on various uh, refinery uh, units um, from a design and build perspective. Uh, after Chevron, I, I went and got my uh, my my master's, my MBA, um, and kind of did a pivot into. Uh, Semiconductor equipment, which then became uh, industrial automation equipment, which then became uh, generic software and worked at Microsoft uh, for 18 years as, a, as an executive partner uh, and general manager there. Uh, and then decided to start OcoChem about now almost four years ago uh, and get back into chemical engineering as I, as I had kind of drifted away uh, into the software uh, landscape. Um, and I'm glad to be back, you know, working with uh, real molecules again. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm curious about several points on that. The, your, your time at Chevron, five, five years there, that was mostly, you said, R&D, and then I assume some of their downstream space refining? Yeah, it was all downstream space, um, uh, primarily working on uh, reactor designs and commissioning uh, for either uh, hydro-treating, uh, you know, sulfur-rich uh, oil feedstocks uh, and generating hydrogen uh, for upgrading, you know, uh, light-cut distillates. They use a lot of hydrogen refineries. They sure do. Yeah. Um, and, Pip, I mean, getting swept up into the software space, uh, yeah, seemingly your timing was good, meaning software has been exploding the past couple decades, right? So. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't start out that way. I wanted to be um, yeah, focused on kind of process intensification um, and thinking that, you know, one way of, of realizing the future was to miniaturize chemical plants such that they were really small. And kind of the closest thing going on to that was semiconductor fabrication equipment, um, you know, in the, in the nineties and the early two thousands. Um, and as it turned out, what, you know, we, we worked on developing, uh, those semiconductor fab equipment, uh, for semiconductor manufacturers. But what we really did that was, that was, uh, I guess, interesting, um, was develop software. Uh, an industrial control automation software based on a crazy operating system that only consumers used, which was called Windows. Um, and we used the version called Windows NT. And, and after doing that, uh, showing that, you know, Windows could be used to control industrial process automation equipment with high reliability um, and the right kind of application coding, uh, that got uh, Microsoft interested in putting Windows into other types of things. And so they hired me. Um, to start doing that, and that's what I how I ended up at Microsoft and and putting Windows into everything from set top boxes and phones to uh, you know robots and elevators. Yeah, that's crazy. A lot of people may not realize or remember 
either realize that they weren't alive then or remember because it's it was so long ago that that, that was foreign, right? Windows was a consumer product and <laughs> Yeah, it was it an wasn't. operating system that you loaded your Excel spreadsheet or word processing program onto and, and that's yeah. about what it was good for and everything else was done by, you know, large Unix uh custom applications and, and large mainframe computers. So we we thought, you know, uh, then that version of Windows had had some legs and was certainly a much lower price. Um uh, than other alternatives at the time, and, and uh, we ended up making that work for semiconductor fabric equipment. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so OcoChem, uh, you, you left Windows to go and, and work on OcoChem then. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I I had had okay. um, you know almost a, a whole generation, uh, eighteen years uh, at at Microsoft, and really enjoyed and loved my time there, um, but fundamentally wanted to uh, get back into chemical engineering. Um, and, and, and most importantly, kind of solve what I thought, um, is, is kind of a, an interesting chemical problem, uh, which is, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, particularly CO2, um, and figuring out ways of, of addressing that, which I hadn't seen kind of addressed. Yeah. So what, what'd you do? What, what were your initial thoughts? Well, I kind of took a blank slate approach to, to this, um, uh, and said, well, you know, I can, there's lots of ways of, of solving this and a lot of things people were working on, uh, from biofuels and photovoltaics to, uh, you know, green hydrogen, um, to many other types of, you know, technologies, which all at the end of the day were, were kind of about decarbonizing in one sense or form, uh, kind of, uh, industry or transportation. Um, the approach I kind of had though was, was, you know, fundamentally, uh, you know, plants have, have figured this out with a three and a half billion year old technology called photosynthesis. And plants have figured out a way to, to extract CO2 at very low concentrations from the air, combine that with water and a little bit of sunlight and turn it into basically all of the fuels that we use today, whether they're biofuels that are kind of instantly processed or the fossil fuels, which were initially biofuels or biomass, you know, hundreds of millions or tens of millions of years ago. And so that was kind of the inspiration of like, geez, you know, photosynthesis is pretty, pretty good. It's a pretty remarkable invention. Um, but, uh, can we, can we improve upon that and, and kind of use those same feedstocks? Um, uh, but maybe use a, some more 21st century technology to try to figure out how to convert that more directly, um, you know, into fuels and chemicals that we, that we might need without going through this intermediate process of having to, you know, plant a seed in the ground, fertilize it, water it for, for four, four or five months and then, you know, harvest it and process it and then squeeze out a little bit of, you know, useful, useful fuel out of it at the end of the day. And so that's what we've, that's what we've been working on. And, uh, we started from there and, and started assembling, uh, basically, uh, assembling, licensing and developing the technologies we need to go do that. That's, that's incredible. And it's, it's such an ambitious, uh, scope and project. And it, it sounds so simple, right? I mean, we've, been lighting stuff on fire for millennia and biology figured out with evolution how to use photosynthesis. So why not just reverse it? Uh, but it, I feel like this is a very novel, I mean, it sounds simple, but also very, very difficult, right? Cause if it were easy, why aren't we already doing it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and I don't know if it would have been too possible, um, you know, many years ago, um, you know, around doing what we're doing. And a lot of times these, these technology transitions happen, not just because, you know, one thing gets better and better, but, multiple things get better and better and all of a sudden the economics um start changing right um and become 
and what we what previously was thought of as kind of uh, you know kind of fantastical becomes practical. Yeah. Okay. So, what are some of the core things that you guys thought about to, uh, I guess, get this idea off the ground? Uh, yeah. So, what what we do? I mean, I may, maybe it's useful just to kind of overview what what, what yeah, we actually do. Absolutely. Um, and so, what we do, we're a set of chemists and chemical engineers and mechanical engineers. Uh, and what, what we're what we're doing is is uh, we've developed a process, an electrolyzer process, that converts CO2 and water in a single device um, uh, and a source of electricity uh, and converts that into uh, a molecule called formic acid, which is, um, you know, as, a, as your chemist in the audience might understand, is, is just H2 plus CO2. Um, that's the formula for it. So it's very simple. We take a CO2 molecule and we add hydrogen bonds to it. Um, and in those and then those bonds is where this energy is stored. Um, and so that's that's all that we do. We uh, and it sounds and I'm oversimplifying it, and my engineers will will beat me up about it. Uh, but effectively, that's that that's all it is. We take a normal kind of uh, you know electrolysis type of pro uh, process that turns water into oxygen and hydrogen. We do the exact same thing except we add a, a second container to it with a different type of catalyst um, to to instead of making hydrogen as a gas, bond that hydrogen to the CO2 molecule, so you have an energy-dense liquid fuel that you can uh, safe, more safely and affordably move and transport around um, to re recapture that energy, you know, at a time and a place um, uh, and in a condition where it might be more useful. Now, should people think about formic acid? Because and some people may be super familiar with this, and we've got all sorts of listeners for our podcast, meaning uh, people from finance and attorneys and also technical people and um, so we, I, I hope that we go and, and are more technical than most of our audience might understand on this episode because I'm an engineer, you're a chemical engineer, and uh, I love digging into the weeds. So, but formic acid, uh, people might think of it more as a true fuel, um, meaning it's in a liquid state at STP, but uh, does, it, does it need to be transformed in any way before you actually use it, or can it be combusted? I mean, you guys say it's non-flammable. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we chose formic acid because there's lots of different molecules one can make. If you have CO2 and, and water, look at all the things plants make out of them. If you look at, you know, a plant, there's hundreds of thousands of different molecules. That and different it's all plants. mostly out of the CO2 and water. Yeah, yeah and, and they, it's all just done with, with different kinds of enzymes to make different types of molecules. So it's pretty pretty darn remarkable um, if you just kind of step back and think about, you know, the chemical plants that, that are in plants. Um, yeah. But we, we chose one that was a simple two-electron transfer because we're very simple simple guys and gals, um, and we just want to make it as easy as possible. And, and the key thing is was the question that we posed ourselves is which molecule could you make that was cheaper to make this way than, than from a fossil fuel? And we eliminated hundreds of different candidates just based on the complexity of the systems and the state of the technology. And ultimately came down that there's really only two molecules, at least today and for the foreseeable future, that you can kind of make um, at a lower cost than making them from fossil fuels. And that's what we do, formic acid. Um, and the other one's carbon monoxide. Uh, so both of those are two electron transfers. Uh, carbon monoxide, of course, is, is a, you know, a poisonous gas in very small concentrations. Uh, so we picked the one that, you know, wasn't going to kill you um, if it leaked a little bit. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's what helpful, we've been focused on. Right? <laughs> 
But to your point on can it be combusted, uh, you know, most things can be combusted. Formic acid can be combusted when it is up to like 450 C, uh, 450 degrees centigrade. Um, but that's really not the, the use mechanism that we have in mind for it. Uh, the use mechanism we have in mind is to develop a, a, a separate little device called a reformer. Uh, and what that reformer does is simply kind of cracks the formic acid molecule um, to release the hydrogen and the CO2 again uh, back out. And so this is a very small device that we've uh, kind of co-developed with Pacific Northwest National Laboratories, a DOE uh, laboratory um, right next door to us uh, in Richland. Um, and once you do that, then you have CO2 and hydrogen in about equimolar 50-50 kind of concentrations. And, and you separate out as best you can the hydrogen from the CO2 and just feed that to a fuel cell, a hydrogen fuel cell, uh, to generate power. And so we didn't want to reinvent the fuel cell. There's lots of people who have worked really long time, and the fuel cells are pretty pretty awesome and pretty good right now. We just, we're just providing a way to get hydrogen to them without having to deal with, you know, high-pressure um you know, hydrogen throughout the whole, you know, supply chain, which adds tremendous cost, uh, you know, and, and safety slash liability risk to the people right. moving it and storing it, right? So, um, and so that's, that's kind of our, our kind of approach to it. So we're kind of like a two device, uh, type of business. Um, we're not the only ones who, who have developed a device that cracks formic back into hydrogen. There's a, there's a Dutch startup company, um, uh, that is right now selling, uh, you know, scores of formic acid power generators all throughout the Netherlands um, uh, to all kinds of construction companies um, and, uh, you know, in the Netherlands because the Netherlands has kind of banned diesel fuel uh, for, for, for portable gen sets. And so uh, because of the nitrous oxide emissions associated with, with any kind of combustion process, um, and, you know, with, in the age of greenhouse gases, we don't think as much about NOx, but NOx is a pollutant. Um, causes eutrophication, um, and so the Netherlands is a very densely populated area, banned NOx emissions from diesel gensets, and so so there's our, our first major global market uh, for, for formic acid used as a as an e-fuel uh, for portable power generation, and they're they're going gangbusters. They're up to 50 people now, and they've gotten you know a uh, tremendous amount of uh, you know interest uh, in the Netherlands and the rest of Northwest Europe. That's awesome. So I'll, I'll say it back and um, just kind of uh, brain dump about a few things that came to mind as, as you were chatting about the process. So when I think about, you know, you guys are taking hydrogen or sorry, water and CO2 from the atmosphere and then recombining into a liquid state. Um, it, it, it feels to me, since you're not combusting it later, less like a traditional fuel and more like an energy storage mechanism where you might take cheap excess energy or electricity to form this liquid fuel. Yeah. Um, but but you described it as you know creating a hydrogen carrier that is cheaper than something that you can make out of traditional fossil fuels. By cheaper, right. you mean less expensive from a monetary perspective or less expensive from an energy perspective. Uh, both, right? So I mean, presumably those always should go hand in hand, right? Like if, if, yeah. if we follow physics perfectly, then yeah, they should. Always no, follow. I mean, the, you know, um, formic acid is kind of a. a, a a mid-tier commodity chemical in, in the world today. Um, and there's, you know, probably 20 different chemical companies that make formic acid, uh, what I call the, using fossil fuels as a feedstock. And so uh, they make formic acid kind of out of fossil methane, uh, natural gas, um, uh, carbon monoxide, um, uh, and have a very complicated, expensive process for doing that. Um, 
But formic acid has never got to the point where it's, um, you know, like a 100 million ton per year type of commodity chemical. So the plants that make formic acid today are kind of small, right? I mean, by by big standards, you know, having a plant that's 10,000, 50,000 ton per year, that's not a really big chemical plant, right, um, compared to, like, you know, the, you know, millions of tons per year plants that are regularly being built, you know, all over the world in China and the Gulf Coast and Europe, places like that. Yeah. So there's right. never any, been any oil refinery, right? Like, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, those are mammoth scale. And so, uh, formic acid today using fossil based processes, um, isn't mammoth scale. And so the, the costs are relatively high to make it. Um, and so we have an opportunity to kind of build a process, um, that uses renewable electricity, CO2 and water, um, and make it for a lot less um, uh, than the fossil-based process. And if you think about it, it's kind of straightforward, right? I mean, uh, you know, CO2 doesn't cost that much. In fact, people will pay us to get rid of their CO2 that they emit um, from, from plants. Uh, Water is not tremendously expensive, right? So that's, that's, that's not a very high-cost feedstock. The high cost is really in the, in the electricity, right, um, in the electricity and fortunately, because of advancements in photovoltaics and wind and, and other types of uh, sustainable technology, the price of electricity actually is coming down, right? Um, and uh, and we're, there are many locales in the United States today where you can buy, you know, uh, pretty low-cost electricity um, that's relatively clean. Uh, one of the reasons we're based in Washington is our grid is like uh, where we're located is 98% clean. Uh, it's all hydro, solar, wind, and nuclear, right? So no CO2 is emitted in the in the production of that electricity, um, and it's available for like four to five cents a kilowatt hour. And so if, with those kind of economics, we can make formic acid a lot cheaper than the fossil-based path. And we think that gives us, you know, not just a you know a you know a better you know total cost of ownership from a life cycle of CO2 perspective, um, but fundamentally, what's going to change, uh, you know. Our, our fueling infrastructure and our, our energy infrastructure is actually using renewable fuels and processes that are cheaper, right, than the fossil-based ones. Yeah. Not, not more expensive, not, not heavily subsidized, um, but actually, you know, build a better mousetrap, right, and sell it for less. And that's what we're trying to do. That's awesome. Um, some of the other benefits that I'd, I'd like to highlight a little bit further, because I don't think anyone, everyone might realize how amazing this is. Um, you talked about it being safer uh, than hydrogen. Right? I mean, a lot of people are thinking about hydrogen as an energy carrier or as a storage mechanism where you might use excess energy or be able to convert it in one way or another. Right? That hydrogen isn't a feedstock or intrinsically creating the energy originally, right? It's just converting it. But, but, and you know, we have a bunch of natural gas infrastructure throughout the U.S., um, but we can't necessarily convert those pipelines and processing equipment directly to hydrogen, uh, as far as I understand, right? Because the, the fundamentals behind the molecule size and how easily it leaks and how corrosive it is and, and just kind of some of the fundamentals behind it make it difficult. But having formic acid in a liquid form uh, that's stable, that doesn't necessarily evaporate, um, doesn't light on fire spontaneously, like, that's huge. That's that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what, what a lot of folks don't don't realize about a lot of this discussion around hydrogen is that, you know, 98% of all the hydrogen that's made today in the world is made on-site for immediate use. Yeah. It's not moved around in trucks or pipelines or, right. or – uh, and the reason that is is because 
you generally match and balance your hydrogen production to the amount that you're consuming for whatever the industrial process is. And most of that hydrogen today is made to, to make either uh, ammonia, which is a fertilizer precursor, um, you know, or to make fuels like jet fuel or gasoline or kerosene or, or other higher, you know, lighter distillates, right? Um, that's what hydrogen is used for. It's not, broadly speaking, you know, moved around in trucks large distances. And the reason that is is because it's really darn expensive to do so. We can do so safely, um, you know, as an industry, but you require, um, you require, you know, very uh, multiple, you know, very expensive compressors, uh, very thick-walled, um, you know, tube-trailer tankers um, to kind of contain, uh, and specialty materials, right? Um, you need specialty materials because hydrogen is a hydrogen is a bit of a bear to work with. Um, at least that was my experience at Chevron because it likes to embrittle steel, right? Yeah. It, it, little tiny molecules get in the get in the little pores of whatever surf, metal surface, and over time, you know, wear that down until a point you reach a failure point. And when you get to that failure point, it's a really bad day um, wherever you're at, right? Uh, because <laughs> hydrogen, um, you know, is the fuel the sun uses, right? Um, and you know, it's it's kind of self, uh, you know, self explodes in a concentration of anywhere from four to seventy five percent you know, in, in air, right, um, in a concentration. And so, you know, you really, you know, and, and we're a smart industrial civilization, and we've been using hydrogen uh, as an industry for a very long time. But, you know, um, if you're going to start moving lots of hydrogen around and have hydrogen refueling stations or, or hydrogen right. microgrids, you're going to make it in a place that's cheap, right, where you have cheap, um, low-cost electricity, and you're going to move it to the place where you want it. Um, because you're not going to go build these probably these electrolyters in places where electricity is really expensive because you're not going to be able to compete. And so we think both models will exist. Hey, I'll go make some green hydrogen on site to go make my jet fuel uh, or my ammonia. That's a valuable thing to do. You'll want very large systems. And then there'll be many other applications um, where you want to use hydrogen in a refueling station or a smaller industrial process and not build a giant hydrogen plant. Um, and in that case, you know, the cost of moving our product is like 10 cents a kilogram, whereas the price of moving a kilogram of, of compressed hydrogen is like $10 a kilogram. So that's a factor of, you know, two orders of magnitude lower cost. And, you know, the way you move Cormac is the same way you move gasoline um, or diesel or milk. In fact, in the Pop, Netherlands... Positive displacement pumps, right? Like it's that's right. Simple. That's right. I mean, in, in the Netherlands, they're moving around formic acid in converted uh, milk trucks that move, yeah. that typically move milk from, you know, the uh, the dairies uh, to processing centers. Um, and, you know, it's just regular stainless, you know, 310 that you move it around in. And, and, uh, and even though it's called an acid, quote unquote, I mean, it doesn't, uh, it's not, you know, it's not corrosive to, you know, most forms of, of, of stainless steel and, and frankly, um, can be used in the exact same infrastructure that we've already built, which is enormous and remarkable and low cost in America, which, and the world, which is our ability to kind of move gasoline and diesel around very cost efficiently, right? No one thinks about the transport or just storage cost of gasoline or diesel because it's such a minuscule part, you know, of yeah. the overall price you pay at the pump, right? Um, and that's because we're, we're really good at it. Um, and, uh, and the people who work in the logistics and the fuel transport industry, I mean, we've got this down to a key, like moving energy dense liquids, like we're really good at that, right? Moving, um, explosive, uh, hydrogen gas around in large volume. We haven't even started. 
uh, to yeah. even really do that at any kind of volume or scale, right? Yet. And like, so again, we, it, we it think, sounds so simple, right? Like, just the difference between a gas and a liquid and moving it from point A to point B. Well, gases are tough, right? I mean, it's just, you know, gases. Um, and, and so there are ways of obviously condensing gas even further. You don't just have to pressurize it. You can, you can right. cool it down to 10 degrees below absolute zero, right? Um, and then move liquefied hydrogen around. Um, and that's, and that's, a you know, a, you know, a more energy dense way of moving hydrogen, but, you know, you gotta have, where's that energy coming from to cool it down? Um, and then you lose hydrogen through boil off and, um, and so, you know, there's lots of pros and cons and, and depending on what project you're working on and what's the distance between where you're making the hydrogen and where you're using the hydrogen, um, you know, the economics will fall out from that. Um, and we just wanted to um, develop a process that allows people to go use green hydrogen in these distributed applications and do so at a much lower delivered cost, right? Uh, I think sometimes we get caught up in the hydrogen discussion around how low can we go to make hydrogen. But no one talks about how, how are we lowering the cost of transport, right? Because if you want hydrogen as a fuel um, and you can reduce that cost to a couple dollars a kilogram, that's great. But if it costs you ten dollars a kilogram to move it, then you really haven't changed, you know, the delivered cost all that much, right? And so, um, and today, uh, the economics of hydrogen are are the same economics as bottled water industry, right? It costs, you know, one third to make it, two thirds to move it. Um, and so, it's not like most things that we're all familiar with, um, you know, from Amazon or shipping, where we're kind of exposed to shipping costs. Um, you know, this is a very different kind of beast, right? Um, and so, uh, and so the economic focus has to be on this distribution cost, which is part, you know, cause you gotta hire somebody to drive a truck. You gotta go buy the truck. You gotta go fuel the truck, right? You gotta amortize the truck. Um, so all these things cost money, 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 right? Um, and so why not just use the existing liquid infrastructure that we have? That's what we tried to do. Um, and so, um, and, and that's what we're doing now. Cool. Okay, so the two products you guys have focused on is your carbon flux electrolyzer. That's, yep. that's uh, how you guys have branded it. That's the piece that actually acts like uh, like an organic plant that uh, does the uh, recombination process, we'll say, from water and CO2. Yep. Um, and then a, a reformer to separate the hydrogen from the CO2. Uh, with, with those reformers, then, do you envision them being, like, at a fueling station or at, at the end user point? Where, where do those exist? Yeah, so we think those exist um, at a customer site. Um, so okay. at a customer site, let's say you you operate a, a large warehouse, right, and you have a lot of hydrogen-powered forklifts, for example, running around that uh, that warehouse, um, and you like to refuel those those forklifts with a fuel, right, because it, you don't have you know six hours every day to you know recharge batteries or things like that. And so we, we envision like on site you'd have this large um, you know storage tank um, you know that would be containing formic acid and then if you want you want when you want hydrogen from it uh, you draw down some of the formic acid liquid it goes through um, this this uh, device uh, that cracks the formic acid and releases the hydrogen um, and then the hydrogen um, comes out in a pressurized form that's that's one of the other great things about decomposing formic acid because it actually is it's called exergonic decomposition. So that you, so that, you that's probably lost most of your audience, but exergonic <laughs> means that when you decompose something, the pressure actually goes up because there's so much energy that's, that's stored in these chemical bonds 
when you release it to have the hydrogen, it wants to, you know, become, uh, occupy a lot more volume, but you, you don't allow that to happen because you have a fixed volume and that increases the pressure. And so you can actually deliver high pressure hydrogen directly to those forklifts. Um, and so that's how we, we do it. We think, you know, uh, you know, you sign a purchase contract with us, Reformic Acid, we'll, we'll give you one of these reformers for free, right? Um, yeah. so that you can, you know, make as much or as little hydrogen as you want when and where and how you want it without having to have giant hydrogen, you know, spheres, um, right next to your, you know, capital equipment or your, or your, your facility. So how, how big would these reformers be? And what I'm, uh, let me ask my other question first. Could you envision, um, and then customer be like retail transportation consumers, like a gasoline fueling station and oh, yeah. you store, store formic acid adjacent, right? I mean, you, you look at gasoline fueling stations and you've got a tank for unleaded, you've got a tank for a premium and you've got a tank for diesel. Some have tanks for ethanol, right? And by tanks, I mean the actual tanks that are buried in the cement underneath yep. the fueling station, right? That a lot of people don't realize where the actual fuel comes from. They just show up and yeah, here's this hose that I put in the car. But like you can have another tank that is your formic acid storage tank. And then you have your reformer on the surface, like adjacent to your fuel pump tank or to your fuel pump. Yeah, that's exactly right. You could, you could use one of the existing fuel tanks. The formic acid would be there just like any other kind of liquid fuel. Um, and then when you had customers that wanted to refuel on hydrogen, um, I mean, you would have a buffer, right? You wouldn't, you know, make it instantly on demand and go directly into the vehicle. Sure. Right? Um, what you would do like is... Like we have a hydrogen storage staging canister. That yeah, so you'd have a storage canister. We think, you know, anywhere from, depending on the size of the station, you know, 20 kilograms to 100 kilograms of kind of compressed hydrogen that would just be waiting there to refuel a customer. And then periodically, you would reform in batches um, a certain amount of formic to go generate that compressed hydrogen, and then it would stay there, um, you know, so waiting for the next set of customers. Um, and so the reformer device itself, at least the one we've kind of designed in our, um, you know, our building now at the next scale, um, we're working on a 10 kilogram per hour unit right now of hydrogen. Uh, we measure it in terms of hydrogen production. Um, that's going to be about the size of a college dorm refrigerator. It's a pretty simple device, right? I mean, you kind of uh, vaporize the formic, you pass it over uh, a catalyst and a reactor, out comes the hydrogen and the CO2, then you separate the hydrogen from the CO2 a little bit, um, and then it goes, you know, uh, then it's available for, you know, a fuel cell. Gotcha. One, I, I just looked up the energy conversion online, but it looks like one kilogram of hydrogen is about equal to a, a gallon of conventional gasoline. Yep, that's about right from an energy perspective. Okay. Yep. Okay, cool. And that's so, really yeah, and for, uh, you know, formic though is not as energy dense as gasoline, right? I mean, let's, I mean, I'm a, I'm a petroleum engineer and a, and a, and now a green chemical engineer and like, I mean, uh, Gas Our liquid hydrocarbon fuels <laughs> are really awesome, right, from an energy yeah. density perspective. Yeah, uh, we're not quite as good as – Formic is not quite as good at that. We're about half the energy density, um, you know, per gallon. Uh, uh, but interestingly, Formic is about 60% more dense than gasoline. So if you get you have a sense of how much gasoline weighs in your five-gallon red, you know, container that you use to, you know, refuel your lawnmower every weekend, right – um, you pick the, you pick this up, it'll weigh like 50% more if you had formic in it, right? Uh, and so what we kind of lack a little bit on graphometric density, we, we make up for, um, in volumetric density, right? So it, mm. so it's a little bit, 
it's a little bit strange, um, but uh, it, you know. Uh, so it's know, like a 10-pound brine instead of, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> the world's full of, of interesting molecules, right? So <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so you've got your uh, electrolyzer, your reformer. Uh, let's dive a little bit more into kind of the business. You guys have been uh, working on this project for about four years. Um, on the website, you tout a bunch of uh, grants and awards, which are super awesome, um, including uh, one from ARPA-E. You mentioned being an early uh, uh, participant with Albert Labs and then just had a most recent uh, award like a week ago. We knew what we were doing was pretty crazy um, uh, from from like a conventional wisdom point of view. Um, and and when you come out with a really novel kind of approach and idea, you have to kind of, uh, you know, expect that, um, you know, it's going to take some time to go do. And so we had no illusions going into this that this was a, you know, this was a, a 10 year, a 10 year lease project before you get to um, uh, super industrial scale. Um, but we're fortunate in that we, uh, you know, the vision that we've painted, the technology that we've developed, and the progress on scale up that we've made, um, you know, we have been fortunate to attract a number of, of uh, you know, grants from uh, some from the, from the folks that you mentioned, uh, as well as the U.S. Army, the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense, um, and then just most recently our own state uh, of Washington Clean Energy Fund, um, where we were, you know, just. Um, we're awarded a $1.5 million grant to actually go build industrial scale versions of our technology and deploy them at the port of Tacoma uh, to replace diesel gen sets. And so we're going to have a, we're going to have a system that makes the fuel, um, the, the formic, um, and then we're going to have a system right next to it, which is going to replace a diesel gen set um, and provide power for up to eight different refrigerated cargo container units, you know, at the port of Tacoma. Um, and we're going to be using, uh, you know, Toyota fuel cells, um, we're going to be using Tacoma Power, um, uh, you know, electricity uh, to go make that, you know, and we're going to take and we're going to, you know, recycle the CO2 from a, an industrial emission source, right? And so uh, the whole idea is to kind of like have a have a nice industrial scale celled um, system where we can kind of demonstrate this to the world, um, and then you know, uh, and then once you know once we do that, you know, we'll be in very good shape to go sell hundreds and. Uh, hundreds of thousands of these types of, of units or build large plants to just go make, you know, formic acid and, and the reformers for people. And so, uh, and so we've been kind of strategic about it. Um, and, uh, you know, and, you know, we're, we're fortunate to live in a country that has, you know, invested a lot, um, in renewable energy R and D, right? Um, I think that's a testament to, you know, our country that, you know, there are funding sources like that, even for small startups with, with like, uh, non-conventional wisdom kind of ideas. Uh, but we've made a ton of progress, um, you know, since those early days um, uh, and are now, you know, building our industrial pipe electrolyzer, um, you know, at our lab uh, in Richland. So that's very exciting. That's super exciting. Absolutely. The, the U.S. Army was an interesting customer. I was literally just last night um, rereading their 2016 report that was calling uh, to uh, try and research very small nuclear reactors. Um, yeah. And then. Yeah, in section four of that, they they throw out this incredible list of bullets of like, hey, look at how we can transform the world. Um, and one of those is we can generate synthetic fuels anyway. Uh, and so it's it's awesome to see that they're also involved, engaged in trying to research how we do that. Yeah, no, I mean the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Army, I mean for that for uh, you know what they're funding us to go do 
is to actually, you know, take CO2 and energy um, and water to go make um, not directly formic acid, but uh, a salt form of formic acid called potassium formate, um, which is kind of a, a, a product that's very easy in our chemical chemistry and process to kind of make um, in addition to formic. And potassium formate is a, what they want to use it for is as a de-icing chemical that's non-corrosive. Um, and so, uh, so you think, why, why, why is the U.S. Army spending money uh, with us to go build, um, you know, a non-corrosive de-icer? Well, our military spends $3 billion a year, according to the military, on corrosion prevention and remediation. So that's a lot of money. Uh, and the reason that is is because we use rock salt. Uh, too much, you know, on the roads of America to get rid of the snow and ice. Um, but we don't do that um, at airports. We use potassium formate at airports because people care about, the, I guess, the value of a $100 million plane more than they do about a, you know, a $40,000 car, right? Um, and a Honda Civic, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like no one in their right mind would spray rock salt at an airport to melt the ice, right? They use, you know, more advanced, but also more costly chemicals. And so, uh, kind of what we were doing for the U.S. Army is to say, hey, we can make potassium formate basically from the ingredients from, from the sky and fertilizer, um, and you can, you know, create on demand your own, uh, you know, de-icing chemical wherever the military bases are that are in these wintry type of conditions. Um, and hopefully that will reduce, you know, corrosion. Uh, so, you know, we don't, we can, you know, keep our tanks uh, on a high readiness alert rather than treating them for corrosion damage. Yeah, awesome. Um, let's chat a little bit about Halliburton Labs and RPE. Yeah. Uh, what? How'd you guys get involved with them, and why did they support you guys? Yeah, well, with RPE, um, you know, they have a they have a seed fund uh, type of program that goes out out and, uh, and funds you know small companies um, with you know potentially breakthrough or disruptive type of ideas, and so um, we've uh, we we won one of the, we won a grant from them on that, and we're kind of in the middle of that. Of that work right now, uh, for Halliburton Labs, um, you know we were part of their inaugural cohort um, uh, when they got started up, and so a lot of bigger companies are starting to do this now, right? Which is, you know, uh, provide their kind of expertise and technical background and engineering and contacts to small companies to kind of help them <coughs> grow <coughs> at their early stages. Uh, and so we've loved joining Halliburton because Halliburton's a, you know, they're you know, they're a premier global oil field services company, right? That supports pretty much, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of, uh, upstream and then downstream kind of people in the, in the liquid, you know, and gaseous hydrocarbon kind of space. Um, and they realize the world is changing too. Um, and we kind of saw eye to eye with them because, you know, uh, you know, we, we realized, and I think they realized that the energy transition is not, it's not like an on off switch that's just going to happen one day, right? It's, it's a multi-decade transition process, and it's going to work faster or slower based on whether or not you have fundamentally sound economic, um, you know, uh, technologies that don't force people necessarily to change, but, you know, encourage them to change because it's a better mousetrap, right? It's a better, uh, more efficient way of doing things. I mean, nobody, I mean, we deal with a lot of, of bad side effects, you know, from combusting hydrocarbon fuels. And a lot of attention, of course, is rightly placed on, you know, GHG emissions. 
But there's a whole bunch of other things wrong with combustion too, right? Um, you know, there's knocks and there's socks and there's noise and there's smells and, you know, there, I mean, we, and we put up with all of it because that's what we all were born into and that's what we're used right. to. Um, but the reality is, um, you know, plants don't do this when they make plants are pretty, they don't, they don't make a lot of noise. They don't reduce, reduce a lot of pollution when they're turning, you know, CO2 and, and water into, into fuel. And when, and when you use it, I mean, and so, you know, combustion is just kind of like, you know, it's totally necessary and will be for a very, very long time, but there are, there's better, smarter ways of doing it. Right. Um, you know, and that's a big change, but it's not going to happen overnight, but it will happen when you start targeting point solutions one after another. And we're targeting diesel gen sets. We don't, we don't think there's a room for diesel gen sets, you know, in 20 years, right? We think we're going to have a superior product to a diesel gen set, um, in 20 years and there will be no need to have diesel gen sets and, and or many other types of combustion types of uses today, um, you know, that, that are out there. But it, it, you know, it's market by market. It's not, you know, just like, all bad, all good, all inferior, all superior, right? It's going to be this phased approach, just like, you know, different different technologies um, start solving small problems, and then they start solving bigger problems, and then all of a sudden that technology solves all the problems, right? Um, <laughs> and so we, we think it could happen that way, um, you know, here. So with Halvern Labs, you mentioned as part of your original cohort. Is that – they're – kind of a grant program for them or they try and take some equity interest or what's, what's the, you know, structure it, it, that look like? yeah. So, I mean, we were approached by lots of different, you know, clean tech accelerators and uh, we've applied to some uh, that we thought were interesting, but, but Halberg turned out to be um, after we invested a lot of these clean tech accelerators, you know, um, unfortunately they, um, I won't, I won't say anything bad about clean tech. Accelerators. Let's just say Halberg yeah, yeah. Labs is the one we chose because um, we were interested uh, not just in attending, you know, presentations from 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 people, um, but but actually working with an engineering and a manufacturing organization that could help us, uh, you know, think through prototype um, and engineer things um, at yeah. a larger type of scale. Um, have some prototyping capability, have actual shops with real engineers that are actually building. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and analytical labs and people who know how to go do things. Um, and so it kind of augmented, you know, kind of our capabilities as a small company. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and, and Halliburton Labs has been great. I mean, I, I've, I personally met with the CEO there, um, uh, Miller, like, you know, three and four times almost every quarter, you know, we talk. And so like, wow, I mean, CEO of a, of a you know, Fortune 100, um, you know, oil and gas services company who's, who's seen and done a lot. Um, and, and, they, and they, they're great um, in terms of, uh, you know, assistance on the technical side, you know, critiquing and, and thinking through things on the strategy side. So this has been very, very helpful. And we're really glad that, you know, we've been a part of it and, um, and, and continue to be a part of it, right? Uh, you know, they have their cohorts just like everyone else does, but, but it's not like once you're, you know, in for, you know, nine months, then we kick you out, you know, um, and then you're on your own. I mean, this, we have ongoing conversations all the time. And, um, and yeah. so I think that's been really useful. And, uh, and they did a really good job, I think, in thinking through how, where they could add value. Um, and who they could add value to, and 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 that's really important, uh, I think, for delivering ultimately the value that that, that they have. 
Excellent. Well, you mentioned several times that, uh, you, know, you, you guys looked at this as at, at minimum, like a five, 10 year project plus, um, and, and you, you also mentioned that, uh, in 10, 20 years, uh, hopefully you've replaced all the diesel gen sets in the world. Um, in which case I recommend that you get Caterpillar a call also and, uh, recommend that they make some new investments, uh, in you guys too. So, uh, but is that kind of the timeline that you guys are looking at for commercialization? Uh, well, we, we will have an industrial scale unit, um, you know, out as, as part of this, uh, Port of Tacoma project. Uh, in two years, right? And by early, awesome. uh, by early, uh, 2024, um, we're, we're targeting and that will be kind of using industrial size cells, industrial size reformers. And then it becomes an exercise of numbering up, right? And so, you know, one of these things I've learned, um, in the semiconductor industry is you don't just keep on making bigger and bigger chips, right? What you do is you stack chips, right? And you have a thing called parallel processing, right? And serial. Um, and so, you know, the way the world scales up, um, I, I was, you know, trained as a chemical engineer uh, in the power law, which is like, you know, bigger, bigger, bigger power law. I mean, and so that just encourages you to build really, really large plants um, to lower your unit of cost of unit cost of production uh, because your volume scales more than your than your surface area. Right. And so that's that's the way the world has always worked in chemical and, 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 and industry. But there's been this other way that's been developed uh, with the information technology industry that I've been exposed to by working at Intel and, and Silicon Graphics and many other type of companies, which is chips. And you just build really small chips, but then you mass produce those things. And then they're, mm-hmm. they're cost. And then each of those is basically the individual unit of production that then you stack together and you, and you scale. You don't scale up. You scale out. Right. Um, and you just number up and we and, and that's what's resulted in, you know, the TV that you might have at home. That's a 48 inch diagonal TV. Well, that probably costs like 400 bucks today. But, you know, 10 years ago, that cost it didn't exist. dollars. Yeah. It wasn't real. Right. It, you right. couldn't you couldn't pay enough for it. <laughs> right. And so and so and, and what made that possible wasn't, you know, larger and larger, you know, TV factories are building bigger and bigger. Every, it was it was just cumulative production, right? And learning how to build these units. Um, and we think uh, just like TVs, we can go build cells, um, you know, in a mass-produced kind of way, and just stack them up. And so once we build one cell that's you know 1.8 meters squared, and we're just going to go build hundreds of thousands and millions more of those cells and just kind of stack them together because you don't need a bigger cell than that, right? I mean, you could there'd be small advantage, but that's that's just like not the way. And so I'm kind of on a on a mission to help bring the chemical and the and the and the energy industry from the 19th century, which is all scale up power law, to yeah. scale out cumulative production. Um, uh, and that's happening in in different pieces and places within the chemical um, and and uh, and energy industries. But um, you know you have to go do it and prove it um, to you know to make it happen. I think I think there's a lot of yeah sectors that can learn from that in the energy industry. Um, so I, it sounds like this opportunity is huge. I mean, you mentioned hundreds of thousands of units sold likely everywhere. Um, do you guys, as a first and early mover, you guys are at a great advantage, um, but also it's, it's super challenging, right? Um, do, do you view this as kind of like a global opportunity? Oh, we Game do. Changer? Yeah, no, we, we think it's, 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 um, 
And it's already happening in Europe, right? I mean, the U.S. is yeah. always about 10 years behind uh, Europe when it comes to smart things um, that need to be done. Um, and Australia is about 10 years behind the U.S., right? Well, I, I don't know that much about Australia, but uh, <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Um, but, you know, Europe is kind of, you know, um, has already kind of invested in formic acid. Uh, there's no way to make green formic acid yet. That's what we're – and that's why we're really focused on making the fuel, Right. Um, if you had your choice to be General Motors or Exxon in this new world, we would rather be Exxon than General Motors, right? Um, and, and we want lots of people to go make different devices that run on formic fuel, but we want to be the ones that make formic fuel the most efficiently and, and build the equipment that can go make formic most efficiently and, and site plants at locations that have, you know, CO2 and low-cost renewable electricity in abundance, right? Uh, and so we think this is kind of global, but – it will start off in the places where people care the most, right? Who, who, you know, where, where do people care most about not smelling noxious diesel emissions or, or listening to diesel gen, gen set generators? Um, those are going to kind of be urban areas, right? Construction sites, um, uh, you know, busy ports, uh, places where air pollution quality is already bad and people want to improve it. Um, it won't be, it won't be everywhere, right? Um, Initially, but it'll start from there, and then and then the cost of production will come down, and the cost of the fuel will come down, the cost of the reformers will come down, the cost of the electrolyzers will come down. Because we'll, instead of just making like we are right now, you know, a couple cells at a time using manual people, we're going to have you know you know mass production facilities that will fabricate these things at rates of you know thousands of units cells per day, right? And then these become production capacity for the next twenty years. Wow. Such an awesome dream. I love it. Um, Todd, I've got four more questions for you. Um, okay. Some of them, some th- three of them are questions we ask all our guests. But before I ask you those three, I uh, on your website you mentioned that uh, there was a fire in yeah. September a couple of years ago. That, that sounds horrible. What happened? I have to know. Well, we were we started off as an Oregon company, and we <laughs> yeah, we're in Washington now. <laughs> yeah, and we had a lab in Oregon in the middle of the woods in the Cascades. Um, and we had just um, got our first kind of, uh, you know, R&D contract so we could really, you know, hire some folks and get going on it. Um, and basically eight days after we signed the contract with the U.S. Army, this is the first one we ever won, uh, uh, a, a mammoth forest fire called the Holiday Farm Fire in Central Oregon raced through the town, burnt every structure in the town of like 500 to the ground. And everybody had to evacuate, um, and the lab was cinders. We just had a concrete pad left. Uh, nothing was salvageable, uh, and fortunately, no one was hurt. But you know, the whole area was a devastation zone in Blue River, Oregon. And so, uh, but we had this contract we had just signed with the U.S. Army, and 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 this was in the middle of COVID and everything. So we said, well, what we're you know, we always kind of thought that we would be in Richland because that was close to our partner PNL. And we said, we we're going to do that a couple of years when we needed, like, bigger spaces and things like that. But then we just moved right then and there, right, because um, we had no new equipment. Um, uh, you know, all of it was gone. Uh, and so we just uh, packed up and moved, and then we hired some additional employees, and now that's where we're based. But, yeah, it was kind of a really weird story, um, and, and that was a really bad day, um, you know, to lose your, your, your own custom-built lab that you had out in the middle of the woods <laughs> yeah, right? to go to – go, you know, invent, you know, the future, right? And so, uh, yeah. Oh, 
ad- admirable that you guys uh, uh, viewed that as an opportunity to uh, accelerate your move rather than a huge predicament, right? So yeah, sounds yeah, like I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it was obviously devastating. Um, uh, you know, we had uh, an employee who, who lived in the area. Uh, their house fortunately survived and was going to work there. But, you know, but, uh, you know, it's 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 a rebuild zone for the next few years. And it was it was almost as if, you know, global warming didn't want us to go solve this problem um, <laughs> and came after us right right at the heart of where we were going to we were going to do our work. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay. Um, questions past all our guests. So, uh, what's what's one thing about the energy industry that keeps you up at night or that scares you? Yeah, I mean, we have to separate out. I mean, I, I try to avoid being in this place where everything bad that happens is due to global warming. You know, I mean, there's we had forest fires and hurricanes before we started, you know, putting a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere. It certainly doesn't help, right? It certainly ad- adds risk um, uh, and uh, and, you know, danger long term. But, um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm personally very grateful and, and, and uh, that, you know, that we've had biomass accumulate on the planet for three and a half billion years. That's all kind of ended up in this very accessible kind of way that has allowed During us to our industrials. Right? Like, it's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, that, is, that has allowed us to bootstrap a, an industrial civilization and and to be in a position where we have the energy. Um, and uh, and the and the wealth to go invent things like we're inventing right now, uh, and, and many other people like me are, are working on different aspects of it as well. Uh, we will have to transition off, right? You can't just continually soil your nest and expect to to have a good life, right? Uh, maybe not ours, but our children's and our children's children, right? Um, and so I'm a Boy Scout, and you want to leave the world, a, you know, better than you found it, right? Um, and you know, leave no trace behind. And so like. You know, we have a we have a we have a charge. We have a stewardship responsibility to make progress on this. But I'm also very grateful that we have you know the energy and the wealth as a society, if should we employ it properly um, and with a little bit of wisdom, uh, to kind of make progress sooner rather than later on this. Before um, you know, things change, right? Um, and we and that may or may not be a good thing. Yeah. Great response. Um, so, what, how, what, did, what advice do you have for young professionals in energy? Uh, advice for young professionals in energy. Um, you know, I would say, uh, you know, find the aspect of the energy profession that you are passionate about, um, and go get skills and expertise in that space. Um, uh, you know, as soon as you can. Um, uh, wherever you can. Um, and so, you know, if you're in a, you know, if you're in an us, if you're, you know, if you're in the hydrocarbon industry or where you're more on the renewable energy side or you're somewhere in between, I mean, um, you know, work at a company that's solving in energy and industry challenges because, you know, all this renewable technology that's being developed is going to integrate with or leverage the existing energy infrastructure that we have. Um, uh, you know, building parallel, totally different systems is not going to be the way I think it works. And so all, any kind of experience, I think, is valuable experience in energy. And as things transition, um, and they've always have transitioned, I mean, the, the hydrocarbon industry as it exists today was very different from where it was 40 years ago, right? I mean, 40 years ago, there was no such thing as fracking, right, that worked, right? Um, the, we had, 
you know, we couldn't use heavy crudes, right, with high sulfur content because we had no way to how to get the sulfur out. And so, like, even if you're coming from the hydrocarbon industry, like, just know that things are going to change. And, and energy at the end of the day is about, you know, delivering um, energy in whatever type of form. And I think, and I think a lot of the a lot of the energy companies in the space are taking this, you know, they're expanding their remit a little bit of how they think about energy um, and realize that they have. Um, skills, technologies, um, customer relationships, understandings of, of challenges and problems that customers have that can be applied here. So I think it's the most fascinating uh, time in the energy industry. Uh, uh, the only thing I think is more exciting than the energy industry right now is the utility industry, which is a part of the energy industry. I think utilities, <laughs> I think utilities, which I would have never said this like five years ago, <clears throat> but utilities are going to be, uh, really interesting places to be because utilities um, are going to be able to adapt um, and implement some of this technology that's coming out uh, and figure out and have, you know, not just 50 experiments around the United States, but but hundreds of experiments around the state that are going to provide a lot of really interesting um, insights and information that other people will be able to learn from and adapt to for their own communities and their own kind of energy needs. So I just think uh, being in a utility right now, would be a very exciting place to be, actually. <laughs> I love that. Todd, any closing thoughts? We uh, we like to leave our listeners on positive, optimistic notes, but you've, you've listed several of those. So, any any other closing? Yeah, thoughts? The, the only the only last thing I, I would say is you know uh, is use don't waste CO two, uh, and so CO two is the basis of all existence, right? Um, Plant, there, there would be no plants if there was no CO2 in the air. The way the world would have, and so CO2 is not the enemy, right? Um, but, but we should be looking at it as a resource and a feedstock that we can marry to uh, water and, and energy, just like the plants do, to create something more and beneficial. Um, uh, and so uh, I'm a big supporter of all the carbon capture technologies out there, but just like the dog chasing the car. Well, what if the dog, what if you catch the car? What are you going to do with all the CO2 then, right? Are we just going to pump it back into the ground? Or can we use it in this purified state to go make more of the things that we want on the surface of the planet um, that are useful? Chemicals, fuels, materials, building building feedstocks, et cetera. So, so CO2 is not the enemy. It is a, is a resource. We just have to get smarter about um, and develop technologies that use it as a resource rather than as a as a, you know, some kind of poison or pollution, which is not. Todd Briggs, everyone. Thanks so much. Thank you.